0: to All Right in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore
1: Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin,
0: Windsor-based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. recording takes place at Gertrude's writing room. We're very grateful to Vanessa Shields, writer and proprietor, for hosting us today. And we are welcoming Dr. Carl Jurgens, who was born and raised in Toronto and attended the University of Toronto for his BA, Ontario College of Art for his BFA, and York University for his MA and PhD. He's a specialist in literary theory, contemporary literature with a focus on Canadian literature, and creative writing and publishing. He currently lectures at the University of Windsor, and he is the author of several works on literary and art criticism, digital culture and performance, and has published in several journals and periodicals. His fictional works have been anthologized by Coach House Press, Black Moss Press, Mercury Press and text editions. His theater performance works have been presented nationally and internationally, including at the Ultimatum Fest in Montreal and at the Inter Festival in Quebec City. Carl Jürgens founded and edited Red Pike, the International Literary Journal of Contemporary Art, Writing and Theory from 1979 to 2016. The entire 36 year print run is now available through the U of Windsor's Scholars Portal, which is care of the Letty Library at the University of Windsor.
2: So, welcome to Carl. Oh, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Uh, small correction um, I did attend the Ontario College of Art. I went there for three years. I should have got advanced standing, but I'm an art school dropout. Oh! <laughs> So fantastic. I never got my BFA there, but I'm actually quite proud of the fact that I dropped out.
0: Okay. So you should be in a rock band as well then. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I
2: used to sing with uh, a punk band for okay. a while. Well, you know, that so is get, absolutely... It fits the profile.
0: Oh, fantastic. Okay. Okay. street cred. Thank you, go you go for ahead. that update. And, and I,
2: I, I was a roadie too. I used to help Concert Productions International in Toronto, and I would uh, build stages for uh, groups like, um, let me think... Bob Marley and the Whalers, Pink Floyd, wow. uh, you know, big bands, you know, and, and, you know, among others, uh, uh, you know, Stones and so on. And, and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, they're all ancient now fossils, mm-hmm. but I, I used to do that kind of work. So that hmm. was just on the side. Wow. But anyway.
0: Yeah, that's great. Oh, has any of your roadie work ever made it into your fictional work?
2: Uh, yeah, some in fact. Yeah. And, uh, I'm working on, I just sent off a, a, a collection of short stories to uh, a publisher which will remain unnamed because I don't want to jinx it <laughs> but uh yeah I just finished a collection of stories and uh i I'm also working on a novel this is ah me neither <laughs> <laughs> everybody says that yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway but, so yeah.
0: tell us a little bit about the founding of Rampike which is your literary journal uh how did that come about
2: well, interestingly enough, uh, it started at the Ontario College of Art um, after I finished my BA at U of T, where I was studying with a lot of uh, literary mentors of mine, including Dave Godfrey, who, who started uh, House of Nancy, New Press, Press Porky Peak, and then he moved out to the West Coast where he started yet another press. The guy was like the Johnny Appleseed of uh, Canadian presses. And uh, I thought, well, I could maybe do a lit mag myself, just for funsies, Uh, and I got some funding from the Ontario College of Art Student Council, and they helped with the first issue. Uh, And I was thinking of um, what A.J. Liebling said about freedom of the press belonging to those who own a press, and I also thought about um, what Norman Levine said, uh, how how all writers start in a little magazine. So I said, well, I should start a little magazine, and I was pretty tired of the pedestrian type of writing that was out at that time. And I said, well, I better do something a little different. But I want to work in art because I was I was in love with visual art at the time, being at Ontario College of Art. So I mixed in art and writing and literary theory. So it worked out pretty good. So that's where it started. I had to get a name, Rampike. Uh, so I was looking in a dictionary of um, Canadian terms. Uh, and uh, you know my choices were things like fire hydrant, session <laughs> road, you know, and I went. Those are very Canadian. And rampike, and I went. Rampike's got a nice ring. I wonder what it means. And I looked it up, and it's the skeleton of a tree that remains after a forest fire. It's this black finger pointing accusingly at the sky, at the lightning that might have struck it. And, and, <laughs> and then I discovered there's a type of tree called the lodgepole pine which uh, will not release its seedlings into the air until temperatures around it exceed the burning point. And so it's a a self-defense mechanism to defend against lightning. And I went, ooh, that's perfect, because the lightning hits the tree, the seedlings float on the air, when the fire burns down, which is started by the lightning all over the forest, the seedlings land on the fertile ash, and a new generation of trees comes up. That's exactly what I was doing with the magazine. And I went, perfect, I'm going to call it Rampike. And so that's how it started. And it's been a pain in the arse ever since. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of changing the name to (laughs) Rumpig.
1: So was the process of editing and publishing the journal a collaborative process with your authors, would you say?
2: Um, Less so with the authors and more so with other editors. Um, uh, James Gray from Boston uh, was jumped on board almost right away. Um, Within three four years, I was distributed on five continents, which was amazing. It just blew my mind how quickly they picked me up. And and I I went to places like Paris and London and uh, Germany uh, to help market it there. And they were all receptive and all over the United States and Canada and Japan and the Pacific Rim. And James Gray from Boston saw the mag and he said, hey, this is fantastic. Uh, I've got a bunch of authors here in the New York Boston uh, network that maybe you might be interested in. And he started listing like really super famous people like Paul Oster and Russell Banks. And I'm going, holy smokes, yes, please. And he started bringing them, steering them to me. And I went, fantastic. And we connected with people like Philippe Soler, who is uh, one of the main Telkel group people in Paris. And I don't know if you know the Telkel group, but they included people like Jacques Derrida. Uh, the the, the person who invented deconstruction Um, let's see Jacques Lacan, Julia Kristeva one of the great grandmothers of uh, psychotherapy and so on and uh, I actually got interviews uh, and I published Jacques Derrida, Julia Kristeva and Philippe Solaire, who was married to Julia. Uh, You know, so like this little circle started spreading. And so it was amazing what was happening. I I, I got Russians. I got Yevgeny Yevtushenko, who was like superstar. And, you know, and then I just kept working it. Because once you get a few issues out with some big names, everybody wants to be in. Mm -hmm. And so thanks to James Gray. Thanks to Jim Francis, who was uh, a student along with me at York U. Uh, I was going for my uh, Ph.D. at the time. And he jumped in and said, yeah, you need a hand. And I said, Sure. And we did all the, uh, the, the grunt work, you know, like we drank a lot of coffee. I subsequently became allergic to coffee. I would drink it like a quart a day. Um, and we would go through all the submissions. I would have a pile of submissions every month that was like two feet tall. And everybody wanted to be in the mag. And, I, and we would read through them, you know, really quickly. And, and so it was with the editors that helped. Later, so it's a great question. Uh, later, um, I had guest editors. So Cateriaca Dam helped uh, edit the indigenous issue. Uh, Alina Bondar, uh, who passed away, God bless, uh, did the, um, she was from Algoma University, Laurentian Chain, uh, did the eco-culture issue. Uh, Richard Martel from Quebec City did the 400th anniversary of Quebec City issue, which is all French, and did not sell well in English Canada. (laughs) It was a big hit in Quebec, (laughs) and so on. So yeah, so editors helped a lot, you know, Uh, less so the writers. Sometimes I would write back to authors and I'd say eh, if you revise this a little bit we'll take the piece you know it's good and so like it really trained me as an editor because I would say this is really a good piece but if you tweaked it a bit it would be a fantastic piece can we can we tweak it a bit with your permission and they would go sure anything I just want to get published I go okay <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so how yeah. did your artistic background influence the well look at on the covers that,
2: here. here let mm-hmm. me show you a slide there's, <laughs> a, there's a slide. I mean, the, for our listeners, the,
0: we had uh, a little bit of a, a sound cue that we'll have photos on our social media. Yeah, and right. we've click, got, click. Uh, you'll be also able, able to see covers of Rampike on the website that we'll post as well.
2: Yeah, thank you for that. And and uh, so the cover art on this is a lot of my design. I because I study it, and and it has a lot of visual poetics in it. Like uh, we have a lot of. Uh, Uh, People who are doing, um, locals like Gustav Morin and uh, superstars of the international scene. Um, Responses to Philip Glass, who is a a very famous musician in the United States. Um, Gary Barwin, who just uh, won some literary prizes. Mm -hmm. And international as well, like Yop Blanc who um, is uh, like a superstar in uh, Europe and North America, we brought him, I actually brought him into uh, Windsor one time. Yeah. And so this is a Yacht Blanc cover, by the way. And so we would look for covers and, uh, you know, art and you know, on the inside and the outside, Covers were color, full color. Uh, the guts were black and white. We couldn't afford color on the inside. We just didn't have the money. The grant money had to come from the Canada Council for the Arts and or the Ontario Arts Council and or from my pocket and or from my parents who were getting kicked <laughs> off. You know, they're saying, you know... When you're going to stop that ridiculous magazine and you know get a real job? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, So, so yeah. how
0: old were you when all this was going on? I, I was, was just a kid. Grow.
2: I was like uh, late teens, early twenties. You know, I was just starting and I'm going, "Hey, this would be a good thing to do." And uh, you know, looking back, it was a stupid thing to do because uh, I could have been writing you know, instead of publishing, you know, and I was publishing other people and, you know, looking back, well, you no, know, I'm grateful to all the authors. I, it was a really exciting trip. I got to meet all these wonderful other artists and writers. And so that was really uh, fantastic. But um, I could have been working on several novels. I mean, this is a 36-year run, and it hasn't stopped. I've been doing it for 40 years because now we have the entire magazine collected online at the Letty Library, as you mentioned, and. Um, You know, it's been work doing that, too. So the last three, four years have been piled up with that. So I've been doing it for 40 years, you know, like little that I know. Like you can get a lot done if you're a writer in 40 years. <laughs> you know, so this is so, yeah. your
0: creative process. So this is well, obviously what you are meant to do. I managed to pump up
2: to four do. books in the meantime, but, you know, and and a fifth one just now. But, uh, yeah, I could have. It is part of the creative process. You're quite right. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. this is an excellent tool for procrastination, though, I have to say. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> of, well, I can't write my next book because I've got another issue to pump out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anyway.
1: So, what was the most rewarding part of the Rampike era for you?
2: Um, I think meeting other writers and artists. It was like fantastic. I got to meet uh, these beautiful, beautiful people um, uh, that were all dedicated to their arts. Uh, I, I traveled to um, Europe. I saw. I talked to Joseph Boys who is like uh, a pal of Andy Warhol's. And he says to me while I'm interviewing him. He says, do you know Andy Warhol? And I go, yeah, who doesn't? You know, like, uh, He says, well, next time you're in New York, drop by his studio and say hi from me. And I'm going, okay. <laughs> I never went. But I did publish Laurie Anderson, who was uh, a friend uh, of, uh, who was associated with Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground, who were palsy with uh, Andy. And so like, um, you know, that worked out pretty good. Uh, Julia Kristeva was a lot of fun. I, I, I interviewed her at the Ritz-Carlton in Toronto, and she comes waltzing out of the elevator with a very large glass of red wine. And she comes up to me and she says, I know in Canada you are not supposed to drink the wine in the elevator, but I am Julia Christeva. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, like, Okay, let's get another drink, shall we? <laughs> and she says, Delightful. And then we proceed. McLuhan, I met McLuhan. I was his student, uh, Marshall McLuhan. Maybe people have heard of him. And I I was in the last class he taught before he died. It wasn't because of me. (laughs) I I was a pretty okay student, but I, I remember him saying to me, "Carl, you should study television. It's where it's at." And I'm going, "Hmm, maybe. Okay." And then, and then William Burroughs. I met you know Burroughs a few times, and he he would walk in. To an art gallery, I actually published one of his shotgun paintings as a cover. It was brilliant. He would he would take he would take some plywood and then he would spray paint it with uh, illustrations from his latest novels and he would blast it with a shotgun, and that would be a shotgun painting, right? And he had a show on in a, in a, a the Cold City Art Gallery in Toronto, and he comes up to the gallery space and he walks in. and He goes, I want a vodka and a cigarette. I'm an old man. <laughs> And I want a Chesterfield, and I'm not talking about a place to sit down. You know, like and, Have
0: you ever considered a one-man show? Yeah. I to, I,
2: well, I, I did, you know, uh, Sarah mentioned that I, I was a performance artist. I've done a lot of performance. I'm actually in Performance Canada. I've got about 30 performances listed in there, and I used to do shows. But uh, performance art in Canada sort of waned around the uh, turn of the century and uh, I, I still do it, but, like, I, I've done it for Bookfest Windsor, and people just don't get it. They go, uh, what are you doing? I'm going, it's performance art. And they go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so, and Norval Morso, he was fantastic. He was a native woodland painter. And I said, oh, i got to check this guy out. He let me use some of his art for the cover, and so I did a cover piece of his. It was man turning into Thunderbird because he was trying to quit alcohol. Mm. And so, like, part of the process was a, a learning process for him to... Uh, divest himself of um, you know negative influences including booze and uh, he didn't want to get paid for his paintings in dollars or checks he didn't trust white man paper and he, he liked me though because I used to hang out with Selwyn Dudney and I used to hang out with indigenous people and uh, I was uh, later on I went up to Cape Croker which is and and to uh, uh, Garden River Reserve and, and so I, I knew a little bit about indigenous ways um and he he liked me right away cuz i understood where he was coming from but he was really interesting cuz he would say like in a dream i could go anywhere he astral projected he was a dream shaman and he says he would go back to the ancient libraries like in Carthage before they were turned down on the astral plane and read the books there and he would tell me what was in the books and I would go, wow, this is great. You know, I've got Norval Morso telling me what was in the books in in Carthage before it was turned in the library in Carthage, and I, I couldn't believe that. So yeah, that was pretty exciting and you know rewarding. So and, and
0: rampack was an early adopter of of making sure that LGBTQI yeah. and First Nations voices were heard. Right.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. We we we've been publishing uh, people. Uh, of, of that type for years. You know, uh, I remember seeking out Robert Mapplethorpe's work, for example. William Burroughs was another one. Uh, no, Ral Morrison, you know, by by the way. A- a- and then we did a whole issue on Indigenous culture, and I've always published Indigenous writers, including those from Windsor area, and uh aka Dam was the editor. She was, she was great. But uh, a whole bunch uh, we've published, like Daphne Ojig, you know, superstars of uh, visual art as well as uh, Thomas King, Thompson Highway, speaking of that, he's both, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm trying to think, who overlaps? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Thompson Highway, definitely, yeah. So, and, and I got to interview with Thompson Highway, and, and the cool thing about that is, since you ask uh, you know, what the benefits of this are, uh, I'm able to teach that stuff in my classes. So I, I will teach something about Thompson Highway uh, in, in the classroom, at the university, and at the same time, I can rely on one of my own interviews, and I hand it out. I did that with uh, Alistair McLeod and, uh, and you know, Eugene McNamara and people like that, too. So I'm able to mix, you know, my, my street cred, as you call it, with uh, my classroom cred, and, and it works really nicely. So, mm. Yeah.
0: So tell us a little bit about the process of digitizing the journal for Letty oh, Library. Oh, that was painful.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So? Like, Well, you see, I started the MAG in 79, eh? And so back then, we had personal computers, but I had an Apple IIe with, a, with the big floppy drives, eh? And you can't store pictures on any of those. Like, they're really slow. And I, I, and I had all of my research on there. And so what we had to do is we had to type up the text by hand and then send uh, a printout sheet, which looked just like type paper, uh, to a professional typographer who would then lay it out onto sheets. Then we had to put it on goldenrod paper at Coach House Printing. Coach House was my printer, publisher, uh, and, and they would do negatives. They would cut in the photos that I provided and then it would be all laid out and then burned onto a plate and then the plate would be run through a printing press. So that's how it started, okay, which is a a really complicated way of doing. Then later, uh, towards the turn of the century, everything was digitized. I was able to load images in color, uh, text, you name it. I would do the layouts and everything myself. Uh, I got really handy at it. I didn't go in. I tried Quark. I tried Quark Express, all of those other things. I found out that I could do everything using uh, Microsoft Word. I Mm -hmm. didn't have to use any of the schmancy stuff if you knew the tricks. Mm -hmm. And so I would do that. I would do entire issues like that, really simple. I would train other people to do it. They learned how. We would cut in the photos. No problem. So after 2000, loading uh, digitalized copies of the issues was simple. Uh, All I had to do was tweak them a little bit. But before that, tricky because we had to scan. We had to scan everything during the 80s, the 90s. Most of it by by the late 90s, you could uh, you could do everything, uh, including the text, but not the images. You couldn't cut in the images on a computer yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would send the images separately, and I would put them on a on a disk that I would send to the printer. Uh, Stan at Beving, uh, Stan Bevington at Coach House was really good about it. He would. Uh, give me ideas. When I first went to him, he says, uh, well, there are two ways. I said, I want to do something different. He said, and I, I, I go, the medium is the message because I'd been studying with McLuhan, right? <laughs> and, and he says, well, there's two ways to fold a, an 11 by 17 folio. You can do it lengthwise or widthwise. Widthwise, it looks like Time Magazine. Lengthwise, it'll look like Rampike. So the first few issues were six inches wide and 18 inches tall, which was really weird but they sold out every single one. It would also fit on the back of your toilet seat
1: uh, because you could
2: stack them up. If it was a perfect fit. Everybody wanted them. Some people got angry because they wouldn't fit on their shelves, um, and, and they would put them in lengthwise. They sold out all over the United States. It didn't matter which where I sent it to. All my distributors loved them because uh, everybody wanted one. It was unique, and, and it had really cool stuff. It got great write-ups by people like... Uh, Perloff, who is uh, uh, one of the main profs, she's at Stanford, and she uh, she she really loved it. She she did a big long write up on it in uh, Formations magazine, and so suddenly we were super famous, you know, and, and like big poets like Charles Bernstein and everybody was hitting up on us saying, "Hey, you want to publish my stuff?" I'm going, "Are you crazy? Sure," you know. I I wrote a letter to George Bowering saying, "Can you send me some stuff?" He says, "Yeah, okay." BP Nickel was in town; he wanted to do stuff. Uh, Lola Lemire Tostevin wrote Gino Critics, which, were, which was a long poem about giving birth, you know. And so, like, we had we had a nice mix going on. And, um, yeah, so it, it was working out okay. And But the digitalization was really difficult for the first issues. And then people at the uh, the university library, I got to thank them, you know. There was a bunch of them that uh, were there. Uh, Heidi Jacobs, Dave Johnson, Marg Mar- 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 mccaffrey Peach. Christina Olson, Selma, Erin Conklin, all helped with the digitalization. And I, I want to thank them for the opportunity to put this archive online at the Letty Library Scholars Portal. And if you want to look it up, it's really easy to find because I could tell you what the URL is, which is like complicated. It's HTTP, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? You know, <laughs> so like I just go, just, just Google about Rampike. Uh, It's easy to remember about Rampike and then a little click up pop up comes up and beside it, it says about Rampike University and just click on university and bing, you're in. And and it's so simple, you know, and I just went, okay, that's good. If you just put Rampike, you you might get a definition of what a Rampike is or you might get our backlist, which is handy to have because if you're looking up a particular name, most of the names are on the backlist too. But uh, yeah, anyway, so yeah, so digitalization, quite a chore. But we got it done, and now it's it's out there. 4,000 pages, um, 36 years. It's all there for free, not for profit, uh, as a public service. And uh, all copyrights remain with the uh, contributors. So I'm being open and honest. I don't want to make money out of this after the fact. There's an easy opt-out if somebody wants to opt-out, but so far nobody wants to opt-out because they all want to be part of the electronic Rampike Archive because it's free advertising, you know. Yeah. They get a book out and they go, hey, I'm in there too, you know. Okay.
1: So how does one celebrate the end of 36 years? Like, what, what is the plan for this celebration?
2: Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked because um, the Soka Gallery at the University of Windsor wants to maybe put on a little show. And then I'm thinking, well, we'll, 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 we'll um, have slides of the archives. I'll, I'll show images. <laughs> and more, more slide images. quick, click, click. These are awesome images. Uh, I have all the covers, the cover images, you know, which are fantastic. And I've, I've kept many of the original covers. So I, I said overprint the covers and we'll keep some. And they're about uh, three feet by two feet. And they're beautiful color. And they're printed on both sides. And uh, I said, well, I'll do blow-ups of some of the internal pages, and then uh, we can uh, put those on the wall, and then maybe I'll invite some of the local authors and artists. I mean, we've had Lucy Howe, um, Zeke Moores, Ian Baxter, and uh, all pass through the magazine at one point or another, and then a lot of uh, local writers as well. Unfortunately, uh, several of them have passed away in the meantime among the writers. So Alistair Macleod, who was always game whenever we did a show, um, Eugene McNamara, God bless, also gone. Uh, but we have a lot of other writers who are still around, and so I, I will probably do like a, to be announced. Uh, Haven't an, I, I talked to the uh, Soka people yesterday, and they said we couldn't get our committee together to uh, yet decide which date, but we're pretty sure we're going to put you on and have a show. So I'll announce it. I'll put it on Facebook and whatever. So yeah, so a party there. And, uh, free food, booze, I'm hoping, you know, (laughs) and, and and then, um, I'm I'm thinking of also doing one in Toronto because the thing started in Toronto. It's been accepted by the Thomas Fisher Rare Books Library for the archive there. I I, I was starting to dig. Yeah. Which is fantastic. I'm happy. But now I got to go through my basement (laughs) and it was, it started as an underground mag. It, it it has finished as an underground mag. So I'm hauling all these boxes of correspondence from superstar (laughs) artists and writers out of my basement, which I carefully stored, and I've got maybe uh, 20 boxes that are big. You know those boxes that you get your paper in from uh, Staples? Okay, they're all that big. They're jammed. i got to get them into Toronto. Somehow, and but they're going to take them. You know, I don't know. So yeah, so they're going to be there. So yeah, that's part. So I, I should do a show in Toronto as well. Yeah. And then I can get all the local Toronto people that I've fed through the mag too. What are you
1: going to do with all the extra space in your basement? is really the question. Yeah, that too.
2: I'll have more space. Yeah, we gonna
1: have a party down there. Well, this is Winds- okay. Windsor is dangerous for basements it's because of flooding. So
0: it's probably a good thing that this is well, happening. My basement's now.
2: been pretty good, and I learned to put everything on racks. So that uh, if it does get flooded, but mine never has, uh, it's it's always two inches above the surface of the floor. So it's it's always been good that way. So I've been I've been lucky that way.
1: That's good. So yeah. what are your next projects other than cleaning the basement? Well,
2: I'm working I, as I say. I just finished a book of uh, short stories that I sent off to a publisher, and uh, I um, uh, I have a novel on the go. I've got another book on money because money is interesting to everybody. And so, I, you know those scams you get uh, from the internet that say, you know, I, I am the uh, colonel of the Nigerian army and, you know, <laughs> I, I have a cache of gold here. My shirt, by the way, is from Africa. You should Ooh. know. It's cool, eh? I got this uh, at the Secret Handshake Gallery in Kensington Market, just outside the gallery. Uh, I was invited to do a reading there with Bill Bissett and company and it was a fun reading but uh yeah so I'll, I'll keep doing reading tours and promoting my own writing so among other things and working on books so i'm i'm working on this book on money and then i've got several other you know i got to get on the novel which is basically a family history it's it's called working title is cold war blues it talks about my family history uh the history of latvia i'm i'm of a latvian background you wouldn't know looking at my name Carl Jurgens, Sounds germanic or maybe english i don't know but um, uh, they, they suffered. Basically, um, Latvians say, we know about freedom because we have been liberated many times. Mm, yeah. and, and so, like, they, they got swept over by the Germans, the Russians, the Swedes, the Poles, the Lithuanians, you name it. You know, they got, they got occupied many times. And so I'm going to write about that history, bring it up to the, um, the Cold War period. Uh, so the centerpiece of the novel is uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then uh, more recently, what's happened to the world since then? Because I don't think the Cold War's ever ended. No. I, I, you know, a lot of people think, well, it stopped back then. Officially, yes. Unofficially, no. Uh, so I'm going to keep writing about how we're putting up with life in the 21st century, and it's, it's rough. So, yeah, that novel. And i got lots to do. That's
0: great. Would you like to set up your reading for us? Yeah, sure. You're going to do a reading for us? Would you like
2: to tell yep, us a yep, little bit yep. about that? And yep, then we'll... Okay. Yeah, well, okay. This is a short story. Very, very short. And it's based on um, the story of Jack and Jill. And uh, Jack and Jill, you know, the old nursery poem, uh, I, I just thought I'd write a story about them as if they were still alive and happening in the real world. I sent this off to the New Yorker magazine, by the way. So I'm waiting to hear. I've had friendly rejections from them before, which are sort of encouraging. So like I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I'll try this one. So this is for their very short pieces section. And, but in this section Jack, of Jack and Jill, Jack suffers from logorrhea, which is a dis- disorder called as causing excessive wordiness leading to incoherency because he's fallen <laughs> off. He's fallen and broken his crown a few tons too many, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he's a little bit wacko. Right? And, and so Jill tolerates his ridiculous attention to rhetoric and wordiness. So this is where the professorial side comes in. Uh, because she feels as strangely attracted to him, but notes that water is usually found at the bottom of hills. So why are they going to the top of a hill to find water and fetch a pail of water? Doesn't make sense. But she's kind of, kind of, you know, likes the guy. You know, she's not sure. But he's never made a move. All they do is get water. You know. So. It's <laughs> a, it's, 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 not working out you
0: know. i relate that they're not siblings at least i hope they're not yeah. no no
2: i don't think so okay. not, not in this version anyway <laughs> okay. unless you want the uh no sensor. no no no, <laughs> no. no. yeah she, so she's losing patience with the fact that jack hasn't made any moves in all these years and the story starts with a repetition of the actual and original jill, jack and jill nursery rhyme so i, I could start shall i start okay Please do. okay so I, I call it jack and jill redux which means repeated or new version Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Up Jack got, and home did trot as fast as he could caper to old Dame Dobb, who patched his knob with vinegar and brown paper. When Jack came in, how she did grin to see Jack's paper plaster. Mother Vex did whip her next for causing Jack's disaster. Okay, so that's how it starts. And I thought, well, what can I do with this? And let's remember Jack's fallen down a few too many times. Okay. So one day, Jack and Jill went up to fetch a pail of water. Jill, weary of Jack luring her to hilltops under false pretenses, launched a tirade. Jack, cut the pretense. No more pails of imaginary water. I've tolerated your ruses because I'm strangely attracted. Call it destiny. Kismet. Strolls up hills. You just don't know me. No imagination. Try something new. Maybe the Japanese fusion bistro that just opened. Miso. Sashimi. Ramen. You listening? You don't understand a word I'm saying, do you? See, I think that's funny because it's in Japanese. How would he? (laughs) (laughs) But that isn't where the story began. The story began ages ago. Jack and Jill went, well, you know the rest. They ventured different hills. Things always ended badly. Jill was a good sport, but on that particular day, Jack pondered. Usually, she's speechless, less than a comma in her mouth. Today, sentence fragments erupt, tumbling to her feet. And this is where Jack's logoria gets the better of him. Jack replied, "'Yes, Jill, let's talk. Think of the rhetorical possibilities. The fricatives, fell, fast, vinegar. The affricatives, fetch, with, th- patched. Nasals, went, down, brown. Our favorite, the plosives, pale, broke, crown, got, trot. Jill, say more, use your lips, share your feelings.' Jack sees Jill's shoulders gazing at her averted eyes while blurting ever louder. Well, fell, pale, ale, trot, hot, hob, knob, paper, caper. Share your thoughts, darling Jill. Jill Jack paused. Jill ferociously slapped Jack's face. That's it, Jack. Hills, water, pails, nothing more. I'm sick of stereotyping. People say I'm playing ball, but I'm not playing ball. I'm knocking my kite out of a tree. People say I like my new car. I don't care about my new car. I'm happy I persuaded somebody into buying me a car. Enough with the hills already, Jack. People say I'm your friend, Jack. Well, I'm not not your friend. I can't leave you because I've never been with you. What good are words if you don't understand? You've fallen endlessly, broken your crown repeatedly. Don't you realize that concussions cause dementia, pathological verbosity? I worry about you, Jack, but what about me? "'Did you give me the slightest consideration?' "'No, Jack, you capered off to Dame Dobb to get patched. "'Is that all that happened between you and Dobb, Jack?' <laughs> "'You left me at the bottom of many a hill. "'I tumbled for you, Jack. "'You thought only of yourself. <laughs> "'Try thinking of me for who I am,' s- said Jill. "'Jack, you've got a one-track mind and transparent ruses. "'Water's found at the bottom of hills, and that's where you're going.' "'And with that, Jill fiercely shoved Jack.' Jack tumbled down and broke his crown. Jill stepped forward, glaring at Jack's descent, but tripped on a sentence fragment she dropped earlier. Once again, Jill went tumbling after. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming to talk to us, and on all the best with your future projects.
2: Well, yeah, thanks for this uh, wonderful opportunity to share thoughts about this uh, online rampike stuff, and thanks to you, Sarah, and and Irene, and Kim, and um, and Vanessa for sharing this space here. So really appreciated. Uh, thanks so much, and and I, I I'll just you know close by saying that I think that it's because of. Um, you know, things like this that, uh, you know, the literary community is being nurtured in, in the Windsor region. And it's it's just growing at a burgeoning rate. It's amazing. So it's wonderful to see this. And, and so thanks for doing this because I, I know what it's like to be editing. And uh, you guys are, among other things, editing uh, when you're putting this stuff online. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank okay. you. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.